Well, it caught my attention what she said. Michelle Obama just recently confessed that she has been struggling during this time, finding it difficult to sleep, finding it hard to just to live right now, lacking motivation to do basic things like, like working out. And she said something that, that captured my attention in the midst of that discussion. She, she said, there are, these are not, they are not fulfilling times spiritually. I know that I am dealing with some form of low-grade depression. And I don't know about you, but I am thankful that she had the honesty to, to bear her soul in front of so many people who are listening. And, and what she said resonated with me. These are difficult times. Uh, they are not fulfilling. And I do find myself with a, a low-grade depression just wishing for things to get back to normal, don't you? Uh, in, in the wake of that, she had so many fans reaching out to her, checking up on her, and she followed it up by saying this. I'm waking up in the middle of the night because I'm worrying about something, or there's a heaviness. The idea that what this country is going through shouldn't have an effect on us, that we all should just feel okay all the time, that just doesn't feel real to me. Isn't that something? It's one thing for us to, to go through uh, this pandemic and to try to navigate the best of our abilities, but to see so much of the friction going on in our country and the unrest, as well as the political strifes that are going on, it is difficult times to be in. And, and I don't know of anyone who is feeling okay, who is feeling fine. And, and those of us who maybe want to say that, <laughs> I wonder if we're just trying to to put our best face forward and make it through a difficult time. Uh, we all want to get back to normal, don't we? We want to, to get back to those times where we could gather together and have a, a room full of people and we can hear one another's voices as we sing together. We long to, to be able to go out and not have to wear a mask. We long for things to be back to what they were like before, normal, right? Well, we're going to look at a passage in Ecclesiastes today that is going to remind us that what we normally think of normal is actually anything but normal. Uh, sure, it's, it's different than living in a time of pandemic, but what we think of as normal is actually a very abnormal time. And Solomon, the wise sage, is, is asking us to take a hard look at reality, to ask some hard questions about the world in the way that it is to wrestle with the problems of evil that we see all around us and seek to understand the purposes of God in all of that. And so we're going to call our study today, The More Things Change. And we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And as we, we see the sage direct our sight to different things to, to look at and to absorb when we don't want to absorb any more of what's going on in this world, he's doing so for a purpose. He tells us in this book that he's like a shepherd that has a stick with a sharp point on it, trying to goad us in the right direction towards wisdom, towards understanding. And so we're going to do that this morning, and we're going to look at his words in light of the good news of Jesus. And so as we get ready to look at chapter 4, let me just say that oftentimes when people teach through this book, they will skip this chapter. They will go from what we looked at in the previous chapter about God having a, a time for to be born and a time to die, a, a time for war, a time for peace. And, and look at the beauty of that poem and say, these are, are great words. But we come to this chapter and it just looks like very abnormal times. 
And so a lot of people will skip over it. But we're going to wade into it today because these are words of wisdom meant for us to hear and to understand and to grow in. And because Jesus himself read these words and he prayed over them and they helped form his identity and mission. So to understand Jesus, we need to understand what the sage here is telling us in chapter 4. So this is how, how it begins. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of, of their oppressors was power. And there was no one to comfort them. Again, he's inviting us to see what he sees. And he's look at, as he looks out on this world, he sees oppression everywhere. And he sees those who have power using their power to oppress others. And he says it shouldn't be this way. And people who are oppressed should have people to comfort them in the midst of it. But oftentimes they're, not, they're left by themselves. And, and in this verse, there's, there's three lines that just jump off the page at me. He talks about the tears of the oppressed and there being no one to comfort them. But right in the middle, he, he talks about power being on the side of the oppressors. And when we look at our world, don't we see the very same thing? We have a constant news feed of 24 hours of bad news all the time. We, we have access to instant uh, events happening around the world. And it seems like there is so much oppression. And, and power seems to be on those who have the ability to oppress. One of the organizations I follow is a group called Exodus Cry. And they are an anti-trafficking organization. And they remind us that there's an estimated 40 million plus people mostly women and girls, 98% of that number, who are trapped in prostitution. And here's an ultimate example of people who have power, financial means, abusing those who are in desperate need of them. Our friends here in College Station at Unbound, who is a local anti-trafficking organization, lets us know that that number, 40.3 million worldwide, is, is staggering. Uh, this is a $150 billion industry. But they also cite a study out of the University of Texas that said of that number in the state of Texas, 313,000 victims of human trafficking and 79,000 are youth. And we look at that and we say that shouldn't be. This kind of oppression should not be. But why? Why is that in our world? The victims are, are so often what Nicholas Wolterstorff called the quartet of the vulnerable. We've looked at this before. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor. These are those who are often at the margins of society, especially in the ancient world. And they're the ones most vulnerable to be taken advantage of. And that happens today as well. But over and over again, God shows us his heart for these very people. In fact, uh, his His ancient people of Israel were given very instruction, uh, very specific instructions. For example, in Zechariah chapter 7, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the poor. Israel was to be a different kind of society. And if the rest of the world out there oppressed, Israel was not to. And yet God had to come to his people over and over again and say, do not do this. He sent prophets to awaken the conscience of a nation about the oppression that was going on in their, in their sides. Solomon also wrote this proverb in chapter 14 of Proverbs. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever honors 
I'm sorry, whoever is kind to the needy honors God. And so, in one sense, we see this over and over again, and it shouldn't surprise us. And it shouldn't surprise us that when we look at our society, that we see those who have power abusing power, even even politicians and those who are charged with enforcing laws. It shouldn't surprise us if we understand that people who have a natural bent towards self-interest could use power and abuse it. And so Solomon sees that happening, and we see it happening as well. And then he's going to tell us something that he's thinking. And let me just give you a heads up. What he's saying next is probably something that you and I maybe have thought at some time, but we probably are not bold enough to say it. We're probably not going to tweet it. We're probably not going to publish it for other people to read. But maybe you've had a similar thought. As Solomon looks at the oppression and the evil going on, this is what he says. I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is bold, isn't it? He's saying people who have died are actually more fortunate than we who are living at the moment because they don't have to have their eyes seeing the oppression that we see. And he says better than those people who have already died and those of us who will die are those who have never been born because they don't have to see the evil deeds that are done under the sun. I remember as my children were growing up, having them in my house and wanting to shelter them from so much that they're going to see and experience in this world. And to see them growing up and realizing some of the oppression that goes on in this world and the effect that that world is going to have on them. I wanted to shield them from that. But we know that we can't do that forever. Every young child's innocence is going to be assaulted one day by things they'd rather not see. Assaulted by things they'd rather not experience. And so Solomon in many ways tells us this. Oppression and the abuse of power are quote unquote normal. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. He continues in verse 4 looking at a different thing to contemplate. He's shifting gears here and he says this in verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and skill and work come from a man's envy. Of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon is not anti work. He knows that humans have been created in the image of God and given the task of working. That's part of what it means to be human. We've been crowned with glory and honor and given the invitation by God to exercise dominion over this world, to bring about all its hidden potential for the glory of God, to nourish and to care for creation. And yet, scarcely one in a hundred people think of work that way. Instead of being an opportunity to love and to serve others, Solomon looks out and he sees what so many people are doing as a competition to outdo one another. And so he says, maybe somewhat cynically, I looked out and saw what everyone is doing, and it's all driven by envy, envy of his neighbor. Ian Provan, in commenting on this passage, said this, it being envy, it is the suspicion or realization that others are gaining more from life than we are that leads us to compete with them in the insane rat race, striving to outdo them. 
when I lived in Peru, one of my Peruvian friends was helping me to understand their culture. And he said that in Peru, we have a saying, and it goes like this. If someone tries to climb a ladder, there are three others trying to pull him down. That's an interesting commentary that my friend had about his culture. But don't we see it in our culture as well? There are those who say, you can't get ahead. You're going to fail. You're never going to get into that college. You're never going to make a good life for yourself. And those voices haunt us. But maybe we're not so bold as to say things like that. But when we see someone who gets an advancement or a pay raise or a new car or buys a new house, is there part of us that envies them? I remember hearing someone say they, they saw Tom Hanks drop out of the top 50 A-list actors right now. And, and there was a part of him that was kind of glad for that. Not that he hated Tom Hanks, but he wasn't Tom Hanks. What is it about humans that we envy, that we don't want to see others get ahead, that, that we delight in someone's downfall? Solomon says that's what drives so much of what we do. And he says this is vanity. This is an enigma. This is like grasping smoke. This is like striving after the wind. Why do we pour our labors and our thoughts and our interests in people and trying to outdo them? But then he also says in verse 5, there's actually an opposite reaction some people have. He said the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. The fool likewise has a certain thought on work. And that's, I don't want to work. I'm not going to join the rat race. I'm just going to withdraw. And he says, the fool eats his own flesh. He, he self-cannibalizes. His laziness is his ruin. And so Solomon, in a sense, tells us this. Envy and laziness are both self-centered and, quote-unquote, normal. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. And then he says this. He says there is something that's better here. Verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of, striving, or of toil and a striving after the wind. He tells us one handful of quietness, a good synonym of quietness in this context would be contentment. One handful of contentment is better than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. I like what the book of Proverbs says. Heart at peace gives life to the body. But envy rots the bones. Better to be at peace, to have a heart that is at peace, than a body that is striving because of envy to outdo his neighbor. Solomon continues in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. There's another thing he looks at that is not making sense. It doesn't compute. Verse 8. One person who has no other, either son or brother... Yet there is no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Here, Solomon tells us something else that doesn't make sense. Someone who, who doesn't have time for family or friends and works his tail to the bone because he loves riches and is never satisfied with what he has. That person never even stops to ask, why am I doing all of this? He can't stop to actually enjoy life with others in his life. As I was thinking on this and reflecting on it, 
I remember what Elon Musk once said. In an interview, he said, if there was a way that I could not eat so I could work more, I would not eat. I wish there was a way to get nutrients without sitting down for a meal. And no doubt, Elon Musk has done some amazing things with his life. He's going to go down in the record books, no doubt. But at what cost to his humanity? Solomon likewise looks at the person who shuns family and shuns friends to work and to work and to work, to get ahead. But for why? To increase in riches, but for why? Solomon says this is, this is vanity, striving after the wind. Psychology Today author Dr. Barbara King, uh, Killinger said, workaholism is a soul-destroying addiction that changes people's personalities and the values they live by. We can see this. We can see this all the time. And Solomon sees that and says, this is vain. He goes on in verse 9 and says, two are better than one. So here's another better than statement, right? Before he said, it's better to have one handful of contentment than two handfuls of, of toil and striving after the wind. So here's another comparison. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Ten, for if they fall... One will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Following on the footsteps of the thoughts about this one man who shuns everyone to, to work and get more, he says, look, it's better to have two. Because you can share the joy of your work together. And if, and if you fall, there's a person there to help you up. So he's saying it's better to have a friend than to not have one at all. And then he goes on in verse 11 and says, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And here, this verse is oftentimes used to, to talk about the benefits of, of marriage and having someone who shares the bed with you. But Solomon may, or may not be thinking about that. He's probably thinking in all likelihood of those times when people take journeys and have a companion with them. In those arid places where it gets hot during the day, like in the Middle East, and it drops to real cool temperatures at night, it's better to have a buddy that you can back up to and help keep warm. I remember taking a couple of my sons to Jasper in Canada one time to camp out, and I saw the forecast. It was going to drop down in the 40s, but I was like, hey, we've got sleeping bags. <laughs> we can handle it. Texans trying to adjust to different climates, and so we went up there and got in the tent, and Boy, did it get cold fast, and we were putting on all the extra clothes we had, and we had our sleeping bags, and I pulled my boys uh, to me close at hand, and it was still freezing out there. But Solomon says it's better to be in that situation than to be all by yourself. And then in verse 12, he says, Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And there's a verse in chapter 4 that people have heard of. It's probably this one here. And so Solomon says, look, if, if someone attacks you, it's better to have a friend. And it's actually better to have a couple friends with you. And sometimes people will take uh, this, this line, a threefold cord is not quickly broken, and, and say it, it's, it's good to have God in a relationship as well. And, and I would totally agree. Uh, my life is better with my wife, with God in our life. And our marriage is stronger because of the foundation that he gives us. We're not easily torn apart because of how he wraps our life and our hearts together. But I think Solomon is just saying, look, one friend is better than no friends. And two friends are even better at that. 
what Solomon is getting at here is it's better to have friends in this life. Going back to any kind of normal where you don't have friends and close friends is really abnormal. Sociologists today talk about this phenomenon called crowded loneliness. We are surrounded by people. We live in a community of 250,000 people. We have 68,000 students at Texas A&M. And so we're around people all the time. But does anyone know us? I mean, know us deep down like a close friend or a brother that sticks closer than any friend. We're surrounded by all these people and we have hundreds of, of friends on social media. But we're lonely. People describe loneliness as one of the modern pandemics that we face as a society. It's not a virus we catch. It's just the way that we are these days. This is what's normal. And there's nothing normal about this. Solomon is telling us loneliness is quote-unquote normal. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. He's going to look at one more thing that he's going to ask us to look at alongside him. He's looked at oppression. He's looked at the issue of, of work and toil. And he's looked at the, the idea of loneliness. He says these things shouldn't be as well. But now he's going to turn his attention to the realm of politics. All right, And this is what he says in verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Here's another comparison. In this crazy world, what is normal? He says it's better to be a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. I wonder if the great reformer Martin Luther had this passage in mind when he said, I would rather be ruled by a just Turk than by an unjust Christian. Don't let that escape what he's saying. In his day, the Turks were Muslims. And he was, he's saying here, as a great reformer, a Christian thinker, I would rather be ruled by a just Muslim than an unjust Christian. By the way, an unjust Christian is an oxymoron. That's a contradiction of terms. That should not be something that even exists. But Solomon says, look, it's better to be a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who won't listen to anyone, whose power has gone to his head, whose wealth and influence have, have corrupted the power he's been given. And then he says in verse 14, for he, that is the poor and wise youth, went from prison to the throne, though his own kingdom had been, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. Now, Solomon is not referring to himself in this. He was raised as a son of a king. This would be closer to David, though David was never in prison. This might be a good example of the story of Joseph, who was thrown in the prison and rose to second in power alongside Pharaoh in Egypt. But maybe he's just rehearsing some current situations he knows in the, the global world that he uh, is, is aware of. And so he says it's better to be that wise and, and, and poor youth who actually rose to power than the wise king who has power but doesn't listen to anyone. Let me just say, in our own context here, where we have politicians that rotate somewhat frequently. I know some are in there, seems like for life, for, for far too long. 
But with every election, there's hope for change and in a new direction, or maybe to keep others from getting power and taking that direction. And with every new election, there's so much stirrings and, and wrestlings and wondering what's going to happen, what change is, is ahead of us. And Solomon says this in verse 15. I saw all the living who move under the sun, along with that youth, that poor wise youth, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. A lot of people wrestle with this and are not sure what Solomon is saying here. I think this is what he's saying. That young king, that foolish and poor, I'm not, not foolish and poor, the, the poor and wise youth that rose to power, and with that, the hope of change and a, and a new government, he says he, he rules over a countless stream of people. But there's going to be a time when they grow tired of him, where they're not rejoicing in him anymore. And so he says, look, there, there are changes in the political world, and there's some excitement, even hope with a, with a new leader. And yet those who come later, they won't rejoice in him. Maybe he's thinking of the people who sour on him, or maybe just people who will live later who won't even remember him. Let me ask you a question. How many of you can right now, if you were asked, name all 45 presidents of the United States? I know some of you probably can't. I had the list memorized at one time, but it has since escaped me. You can show me portraits of some of the presidents now, and I'm like, I recognize him. <laughs> But if you can recite all of them, can you give me three of the top accomplishments of each and every one of these presidents? These were people who had the height of power, both in the birth of our nation and the sustenance of our nation and leading our nation through, through bad times and good times. And yet, how many of us rejoice in them? Because Do we even know what they did? Augustine once said, the dead are replaced with the dying. Those who come later don't necessarily rejoice in those who were before them. In fact, we've come through the book of Ecclesiastes, and he said, look, it's likely within a very short period of time after we've been here and all are scurrying about that no one's even going to remember our name. And that's the same with leaders. And so I think Solomon, in one sense, is saying this. Normal politics is both fleeting and wearying. But it's not the way it's supposed to be. I know, my friends, with every single election, at least in my lifetime, I always remember politicians saying, this is the most important election of our lifetime. Have you heard politicians say that? All right, they're trying to mobilize people into action and, and to vote. And no doubt, every election is important. I saw a Pew Research study on Friday that said, more Americans now than ever think that this is the most important election we are facing. And maybe it is. But we have very little control. We have votes, but we have very little control over what happens with whoever is the president come next year. And time will go on, and that person will pass. There will be new presidents 
And as I was reflecting on this, I thought about the quote by John Piper who said, one day, America and all its presidents will be a footnote in history, but God's kingdom will never end. One day, America and all its presidents will be a footnote in history, but God's kingdom will never end. Sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder how things might be different under the sun if those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus spent half as much time talking about Jesus and his kingdom as we do talking about the latest footnote in history. Sometimes I wonder. And so Solomon directs our gaze to various things under the sun. Issues of injustice, issues of oppression, issues of the abuse of work and and wrong motives for doing so, the issues of, of loneliness and even politics. And he tells us it's all vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. It's a striving after the wind. There's nothing new under the sun. This is the normal that we inhabit east of Eden under the sun. Do you see what Solomon is saying here? And, And I wonder if Solomon, hearing Michelle Obama, would agree that the normal that we normally inhabit maybe should lead us to a low-grade depression. Because our normal is not normal. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And so he paints us a picture of what life is like. And if we listen carefully to what he's saying, we should hear Solomon saying to us, don't you hunger and thirst for a new normal That normal we all want to get back to is is really not normal at all. There's so much wrong with it. Don't you hunger and thirst and ache for a new normal that's not defined by these things. And that, my friends, is why Ecclesiastes is the perfect book for our times. Because not only is it a high-octane dose of reality, but it also sets the stage perfectly for us to understand Jesus and the good news of the coming kingdom of God. You see, Jesus entered this world and he experienced the injustice and oppression of this world. He experienced the envy of the religious leaders who wanted to get him out of the way because he was becoming too popular and he was not including them in his plans. He experienced the injustice of Roman authorities who knew they were executing injustice, but they didn't care. Jesus knew what it was like to be lonely, to have no one understand who he was. And the people who thought they understood him trying to make him in their own image and to use him for their own purposes and to be abandoned by his closest friends at the hour of his need. He knew what it was like for the politics of this world to be crazy and oppressive. And so he came, nevertheless, not only to experience this 
normal reality that you and I experience, but also to bear the burden and curse of it. And so earlier in our series, I quoted from that hymn that we sing at Christmas time, O Holy Night. I just quoted the first stanza, but I want to quote that first stanza again. And the second and third one as well. The third one almost hardly gets any airplay at Christmas time. But it tells us about the birth of Jesus. And this is how the song goes. If you know it, sing along. <laughs> I'm not going to sing. Don't worry. Oh, holy night. The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. O oh, night divine. O oh, night when Christ was born. Led by the light of faith, serenely beaming. With glowing hearts, by his cradle we stand. Led by the light of a star sweetly gleaming, here come the wise men from Orient land. The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger, in all our trials born to be our friend. He knows our need to our weaknesses, no stranger. Behold your king, before him lowly bend. Behold your king, before him lowly bend. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever, his power and glory evermore proclaim. His power and glory evermore proclaim. My friends, the good news is that Jesus came and experienced our new normal, which is anything but normal, so that he could not only bear the curse of this abnormal world and your sin and my sin upon himself, but also that he may one day usher in that glorious new normal, the kingdom of God, where there be no more tears and no more oppression, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. And so, until that day comes, we proclaim his power and his glory because Christ is the Lord. And get this, the effect that should have in our life makes a huge difference while we live in these abnormal, normal times. Because you see, my friends, where there is justice, we, I'm sorry, where there is injustice, we pursue justice. And where there's oppression, we bring comfort. Where people are motivated by envy and, and love of riches, we are motivated by love of others and the glory of God. Where there is loneliness, we bring friendship. And where there are temporary kingdoms, we seek first Christ and his kingdom. My friends, that is the difference that Christ makes in this world that does affect us in all kinds of negative ways. And his power and his glory and his coming kingdom is meant to give us a hope 
and courage to face another day in this weary world. And so my friends, that is good news. The day is coming when what is normal under the sun will give way to the new normal of Christ's kingdom. 